Mr. Brathman, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Okay. Now, back in 2017, Jeff Tubin called the last of the big-time defense attorneys. Why does it seem that less cases are being tried these days than perhaps in years, decades prior? Is the government doing its job better, investigating? Are the sentencing rules too restrictive? Are lawyers lazier? What do you think? Well, I think it's a combination of uh, factors. You know, today the courts are still playing uh, catch up uh, with the difficulties that the COVID epidemic um, resulted in. And many of the trials that you don't read about or know about involve uh, people who in effect have been remanded since the epidemic hit. So they get priority. And while the courts have still not caught up, uh, in recent months, there are more cases uh, than the past three years have actually resulted in trials. The other issue you need to resolve is uh, uh, people are afraid of going to trial. Uh, the government wins a lot of its cases. Uh, the result is that if you can do a good job of fashioning a way out uh, prior to trial, at the end of the day, you sometimes can save a uh, person uh, multiple years of incarceration. And in some cases, maybe even uh, get a disposition that doesn't include any period of incarceration. So it's a combination of factors. I think the government has gotten uh, substantially better at what it does as a result of uh, modern technology. And I also think that in every single case that I've been in, in terms of trial work, um, the ultimate uh, weapon against a defendant uh, is generally consists of uh, their own texts, their own emails, which are very difficult in some cases uh, to overcome. You know, years ago, they used tape recordings. And I won a lot of cases where government tape recordings was the real evidence against uh, my client. But in the tape, you can sometimes, uh, uh, you know, challenge the tapes uh, tenor of the conversation and, you know, suggest that either the comment was taken out of context as it often was, or people, uh, you know, essentially say things that they don't mean. And you can tell from the way they said it that they don't mean. When you print an email, it's in black and white. It's your email. And, you know, I, I'm going to be speaking about this in the next coming weeks. But, you know, emails are forever and texts are forever. So even though, a, you know, a client uh, says, don't worry about my emails, you know, I've, I've destroyed my server long before I came under investigation. So there's no, not even a hint of obstruction of justice. The fact is that the government uh, experts and our own experts can restore many of these uh, materials, even after you think uh, they've been erased permanently. Now, I want to talk about your cases a bit. Obviously, there are too many to talk about for in any restrictive period of time. But there are some, I think, that are emblematic of bigger themes in the justice system. I want to talk about Dominic Strauss-Kahn, which is a case that was dismissed post-indictment, which virtually never happens. Do you think that prosecutors should be more willing to exercise their discretion in cases where it is appropriate, obviously, to undertake these kinds of efforts? Well, you know, that case, um, which you know, brought an enormous amount of publicity because not only was he the president of the IMF, he was also going to be the next president of France. Um, and I think in that case, uh, prosecutors were uh, reluctant uh, to let him go back uh, 
to France. They insisted that he was arrested on a plane. Uh, we argued without uh, uh, you know, them agreeing that this was a uh, trip that had been pre-planned. He has not, uh, they didn't run away because of what happened in the motel room. And I think in that case, uh, um, inexperienced judge and inex inexperienced uh, uh, prosecutors, uh, you know, they uh, believe the, the testimony, if you will, of a woman whose uh, credibility had not been vetted, whose uh, story kept changing, and who did not have, you know, any, any uh, real evidence to support her. And I think when you analyzed her uh, story, uh, you would see in a heartbeat that it was literally impossible for it to have happened the way she suggested. I also think, you know, in that case, um, you know, the fact that it was such a high profile case, you know, caused the prosecution to uh, put the case into the grand jury before it was fully investigated. And I think if we are to be given any credit, I think uh, the decision we made very early on is the evidence uh, we developed, uh, we gave to the DA. And as a result, it was hard for them to say we were doing this you know, for the publicity, we were doing it for any alternative reason. We gave it to the DA. And early on, when they confronted her with some of the this uh, evidence, um, she went nuts. And I think, you know, ironically, um, they put a very experienced prosecutor in charge of the case after uh, the arraignment. And she saw very quickly uh, what we saw, that you could not put this woman on the witness stand, that she would... Uh, you know, disintegrate, if you will, as a witness very quickly. And I think uh, it caused them to reevaluate that case quickly. And I think to Vance's credit, um, you know, in the meeting, you know, I had with Vance, you know, my basic argument is, you know, when you get a, a bad infection on your hand and you cover it with a Band-Aid, you can keep it covered for months and eventually the, invest the infection will fester and at the end of the day, um, it will not help you, or you can just rip off the Band-Aid, and then, you know, in 10 minutes, you will see that the wound uh, that's treatable should be treated. The other thing I should tell you is that whenever he had to go to court, uh, when he was finally released on bail, and, you know, we went to court with him, there was so much press and media that the, 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 the corrections people had to shut down Center Street. Now, I've been in other high-profile cases. That's never happened before. It was the financial press, the European press, the press, the political press, and everybody else uh, was there. And you know, he came out, and there were a hundred uh, microphones set up for you to deal with. So it was quite a spectacle, if you will. But I give them credit; they ultimately dismissed the case after indictment. You're right; that rarely, if ever, uh, happens. And you know, if I had to recount what what uh, you know, results were, you know, quite good. Uh, that's high up there. What does that case say about the grand jury and the indictment process in general, right? When you hear about these things in the media, they sound pretty bad and they are pretty bad. Nobody wants to be indicted, obviously. But legally speaking, how serious are these things in terms of the way the process goes? Well, what it says about the grand jury process is you can't rush as a prosecutor. And when someone is denied bail, um, like Mr. Strauss was at the beginning of this crazy case, um, you have to get the grand jury to consider the evidence within five days on the section 180 of the criminal procedure law. And whenever you rush a presentation, you're stuck. 
uh, with the testimony and the manner in which it was taken. And that was literally the undoing um, of their case because you know this woman gave a different uh, version of what she claimed was the truth uh, to the police. She gave a different version to the grand jury and then she gave different versions whenever she met with the district attorney to uh, prepare the case post uh, uh, indictment. And I think uh, we knew about those uh, different versions and to the credit of the prosecutor who ultimately got this case, uh, I remember her name, Joan Aluzio. I mean, she knew what she was doing and the case was you know, put into the grand jury at the beginning by, by people who were just rushing to get an indictment. And I tried to stop it, uh, we couldn't. And their decision to remand Dominic Strauss-Kahn and not give him any bail was in my judgment, mistake number one that eventually literally undermined the whole case. You know, Alan Dershowitz has told me that he teaches his students to try criminal cases, not on reasonable doubt, as is often the case, but on actual innocence, that juries don't respond to reasonable doubt defenses because the presumption is one of guilt rather than innocence. I understand every case is different. Every case is fact specific. I get that. Is that something that you've seen? Um, in some cases, and I think, you know, it's hard to make a general statement like that. Some cases, uh, every case is fact specific. And I, I know Alan Dershowitz for many years, we have friends. He is a, obviously a brilliant man. Um, I'm a trial lawyer. I think he is a brilliant appellate lawyer and sometimes he's actually in the courtroom. But you know, when you've tried as many cases as I have, you realize that uh, the presumption of innocence, quite frankly, doesn't really exist. And that uh, the issue of beyond a reasonable doubt sometimes is all you've got at the end of a case. And, you know, if you're going to get a not guilty, I'm not certain you ever get a declaration that says not guilty and innocent. You know, you get a declaration not guilty because the case was not proven, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. I will, I will take that standard uh, because it's very hard to prove someone uh, to be innocent, especially in a fraud case where they are uh, talking about what your client said and did. So when you look at it, you know, there is some proof that suggests wrongdoing. And sometimes the only thing you've got working for you is the lack of criminal intent. So that's an element. And if they don't prove that, uh, that, intent, that intent was proven beyond a reasonable doubt, you win. I want to talk to you a bit about Harvey Weinstein, who you represented for some period of time. You had, during your representation, implored the press to distinguish between criminal behavior and bad behavior, right? How important it is, is it rather, for us as a society, as a civilized citizenry, to draw that distinction in every criminal case? Well, you know, that case is also unique. And one of the reasons, you know, I withdrew his counsel for Harvey, I mean, he and I developed a very good relationship, but I think he would, you know, just not listen to me. I mean, at some point, he's, the words he used is that, you know, he believes that he needs to be represented by uh, a, quote, skirt, uh, close quote, because he wanted a woman to be, you know, his principal lawyer. And, you know, I said to him, you know, there are only a handful of lawyers in the United States who I know who have, you know, earned their stripes as a criminal defense lawyer. And he went out and, you know, hired this woman who I never knew. And once I met her and tried to, you know, help her, I mean, she essentially rejected uh, my help. 
And I think she thought that, you know, given the, the testimony in that case and given the emails that I got, you know, through, you know, forceful litigation with the bankruptcy court, and we got those emails, um, those emails, I think the case should have resulted in an acquittal. And I think, to be honest with you, you know, she can claim however she wants to that she did a good job in that case, but Harvey got a 23-year uh, sentence that he's current, currently serving. So I don't know uh, how many cases where you claim to have won where the defendant end up, ends up getting sentenced to 23 years in jail. You know, that was one of those cases where venue was sought to be moved and it wasn't. And the standard these days seems to be very high for that to happen, even in cases such as that one where the media presence was so strong. Do you think there are ever cases where, particularly recently, those kinds of efforts prevail? Well, assuming venue, a change in venue was granted, where could you try Harvey Weinstein without getting, you know, a complete, you know, overwhelming media presence. In that case, you could go to Peru, and that case would be front page, and you probably get more uh, coverage in a different jurisdiction than, than Manhattan. I happen to think that Manhattan is probably one of the best cases uh, to try a case. You have a lot of uh, liberal people in Manhattan. You've got a lot of people who really believe um, in the presumption of innocence. And the, the two, uh, you know, women whose testimony the jury relied on in that case, to me, it's stunning that he got convicted. I'm not suggesting that Harvey is a good guy, and I'm not suggesting that anyone who is, you know, is part of the morality police, which we are not, you know, couldn't be offended by what Harvey Weinstein, you know, did over his life. But the, the two women that, you know, testified in that case, who, you know, condemned Harvey's behavior and ultimately 23 years in jail, I mean, to me, it was stunning that he was convicted because the, you know, the testimony that was available for cross-examination was so overwhelming um, that it was remarkable to me uh, that they were convicted. And also, quite frankly, remarkable to me that the cross-examination technique of the principal lawyer in that case was aggressive and, and got these women to start crying, which is certainly not the way, you know, I would have approached the cross-examination, they're on different speeds for cross-examining people. And you don't really have to, you know, beat somebody up uh, to effectively cross-examine them, especially people who are viewed by the public as, quote, victims, close quote, and emotionally infirm. But the, you know, the principal, the principal women in that case who uh, accused Harvey of uh, misconduct were, you know, emailing him love notes before, after, and even during some of the offensive uh, behavior. Plus one of the women, as I recall, right after she claims to have been raped by Harvey, emailed him that same day because her mother was in town and she wanted Harvey to meet with her mother. And, you know, I would have argued, well, how many rape victims do you know who after the rape would feel good enough about inviting their mother to meet the rapist? But, you know, beating the woman up in a tough cross uh, was, in my judgment, a mistake. I want to talk to you a bit about the P. Diddy trial in the late 90s. How important was that trial to your career, co-counseling a case with Johnny Cochran just several years after the OJ acquittal? How big was that for you? It was very big. And it was obviously, you know, very big uh, 
for me, uh, for Mr. Cochran, but even bigger for, you know, Puppy. You know, I remember telling him during the trial when, you know, we had arguments with some of his, you know, colleagues. Um, I remember telling him, he said, look, you know, you're having a heart attack and I'm, let's say I'm a cardiologist. You don't survive every heart attack, but your best chances of surviving is listening to a cardiologist who has your best interest at heart. I think I know what I'm doing. You may get convicted and, you know, I may have a lot of questions to answer, but, you know, we're trying to get you acquitted. And just think of it this way. If you get convicted, uh, you're going to get 15 years in prison. Your career is going to go in the toilet. But if you get acquitted, uh, you may turn out to be maybe one of the most successful African-American entrepreneurs in the history of uh, the world. And he is. And so I was right, thank God. And, you know, for me, it was an acquittal of a case that really had the focus of the world on it at the time. In every decade, there is a trial of the decade. In my opinion, that was the trial of the decade. His career had just taken off. He was relatively young. I think he was in his early 20s during that trial. And Johnny Cochran uh, didn't want uh, to participate in the trial the way people expected. <clears throat> and he deferred to me because he really didn't know uh, the New York rules of evidence, the New York rules of criminal procedure. And I think one of the reasons he brought me into the case was because it's a complicated place to try criminal cases. And, you know, I watched the OJ trial from time to time, and I loved Johnny Cochran. We became very close friends. But, you know, some of the stuff that Judge Ito allowed them to do in that case would never be tolerated in uh, New York a courtroom. And, you know, Matthew Bogdanos, who was the prosecutor in that case, was exceptionally talented, was very good at his job, still there, trying very important cases for the DA. And the judge, uh, Charles Solomon, you know, is maybe one of the best judges in that building. I have a great deal of respect for him. And he, I think for me, but he runs a tight ship. So you can't get away with, uh, you know, uh, stuff in his courtroom that was, you know, available to you in uh, Judge Ito's courtroom, who became a media darling during the trial. And, you know, I think he was posturing more to the cameras uh, than to the, you know, the legal experts in the, in the community. So uh, they did a good job. OJ was acquitted. And uh, I think we did a good job and, and Puppy was acquitted. In 2015, you represented Dinesh D'Souza, the political pundit, to a non-custodial sentence in federal court. There have been implications by him and others that these prosecutions, or that prosecution rather, was a political prosecution. You hear that a lot these days, obviously. How important is it for our justice system to do away with that kind of thing? Look, we're never going to know, obviously, the motives behind, any real motives behind any prosecutions. How important is it for us to do away with even the perception that these things exist? You know, one of the things I try and, and uh, make clear when I represent someone who is, you know, a high profile person and maybe uh, uh, a difficult person or someone whose politics is front and center, I, I don't join in the political discourse. You know, I, I know Dinesh D'Souza, he's a very smart guy. I don't agree with his politics, I never did. But that's not my job. You know, I'm not uh, supposed to say I agree or disagree. Um, but, you know, in that case, I never saw any evidence that it was politically motivated. Now, he may believe that until he 
dies, and he may be right. But if you're asking me, was there any evidence to which I could point? No, but I do think that getting him a non-custodial sentence was a remarkable result in that case. And I not only credit my advocacy, I also credit uh, Judge Berman's uh, uh, decision. I think he was a very, he's a very smart judge. I think he is not allowed uh, himself to ever be influenced by you know, issues outside the courtroom. But I also think what he saw was, you know, the government's push to put the, you know, the Mitch D'Souza in jail was in, in my opinion, over the top and it wasn't necessary. And what the Nish D'Souza did in that case was, you know, regrettable, but he didn't do it out of any reason other than friendship for the person whose career um, he was trying to help. They were friends from Dartmouth, as I recall, and the amount of influence he had in getting uh, that woman elected was marginal at best. I, think, I don't think she got elected. I think she lost her trial. But, you know, the prosecutor in that case is a woman who I, who I know and respect. But I think on balance, I think the Southern District, you know, should have come in and said, you know what, Judge, you know, we agree that the non-custodial sentence is appropriate. Uh, D'Souza has accepted responsibility. That is, you know, key. The government's effort, you know, has resulted in a conviction. And they should have either backed off and said, you know what, Judge, do what you think is appropriate. Instead, I think the sentencing in that case was maybe one of the most complicated arguments, you know, I've ever had in terms of uh, a sentencing uh, proceeding, because they really, uh, in my opinion, went over the top uh, to try and get him incarcerated. And the ultimate irony uh, in that case is that the community service that uh, Dinesh D'Souza ended up uh, serving was as a teacher of English to uh, new immigrants who were coming to the United States. And the teacher they had was Dinesh D'Souza. So he managed to convert thousands of new immigrants into his right-wing, you know, crazy political agenda. So I think at the end of the day, there are certain bit of irony in, in, in that uh, result, that he never went to jail, which was a good result. Now, speaking of very smart clients, you've called Martin Shkreli a genius, right? It would be hard to deny that he is a man of exceptional brain power. Lawyers aren't supposed to make all the decisions for their clients. That's what the rules say. Um, but it helps when clients listen to lawyers. How hard is it to get a client to listen to you? when it is a client of such wisdom, let's say. Well, look at the ex-president uh, today who is essentially going through uh, lawyers as, you know, other people, you know, go through uh, the shirts or laundry. Um, you know, some clients can't be controlled. The interesting part about Martin Shkreli, uh, my favorite quote, which has been reported is me saying, you know, there are times when I want to hug Martin Shkreli and there are times when I want to punch him in the face. Um, and Martin Shkreli, if he just kept his mouth shut and allowed us to handle everything and not, you know, offered $5,000 to anyone who would pull a lock of hair out of, you know, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's head um, and, you know, try to romance, you know, a, a reporter who just didn't want to have anything to do with them. I think his sentence, in my opinion, would have been a year and a day or 18 months. He would not have been remanded when the trial was over. This judge. Uh, 
who I have a great deal of respect and affection for. She's a very, very fair judge. And after the trial and after the verdict, she, you know, wished Mr. Shkreli luck. And, you know, in that case, we had eight counts. Um, he was acquitted of five of the eight counts, and he was acquitted of the five harshest counts that had the, uh, the, all the money under the sentencing guidelines. And he was found not guilty of that. So he walked out of the courtroom. And to be honest with you, at the time, I was more proud of that verdict than almost any acquittal I've ever had. Because the jury selection in that case, which went on for a long time, in federal court, it's very rare that you get that much time. But we had literally hundreds of jurors who were coming up the sidebar and saying horrible things about the Martin Shkreli and were excused for cause. And, you know, some of them were very outspoken and critical of Mr. Shkreli and really didn't have to hide or try to hide uh, their anger and resentment of him. Of course, you know, at the time he was called the most hated man in America. And, you know, I think the the jury pool believed that he had, um, you know, increased the price of a life-saving AIDS drug. And, you know, when you start up with an HIV uh, population, you're talking about a vulnerable uh, group of people. And the jurors conflated everything. Now, that trial had nothing to do with the increase in the, in the drug. But that's what, the, you know, the case was, a, you know, a fraud case and securities uh, fraud that had nothing to do with his increasing the, the price of the drug by a couple of thousand, you know, percent. But, you know, that's what people knew about him. And he didn't help himself. I mean, he was, so he didn't listen. But I think Martin Shkreli was also one of my favorite clients, one of my most difficult clients, and also one of my favorite clients. And he's maybe one of the smartest people I've ever represented. And I've represented a lot of people who are smart or who think they're smart. Martin Shkreli was really smart. I mean, during the trial, he would sit next to me and read uh, an organic chemistry textbook as, as literature. I mean, he really wanted to learn organic chemistry. And I said, you know, Martin, to my friends who went to medical school, this is maybe one of the most difficult subjects. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not finding it difficult at all. And I, I, I saw that. And when we were preparing for trial um, and we had, I think, a million exhibits, there were a million uh, emails, texts, and I said to him, I, I could really use an email that helps us with this conversation. And he would say, look at exhibit 750. And, you know, sure enough, I would look at that exhibit and it was right on the money. So, you know, he's a photographic memory, a genius in my opinion. And I think if they left him alone and if he was behaving, I think he could be in the lab and, and find a cure for cancer. I've often said that. So maybe I'm wrong. I think I'm right. I want to finish up by talking about your representation of Michael Jackson for some time. You've noted that the infatuation with him was unlike any client you've seen, and you've seen many. How difficult is it to navigate the media in those kinds of cases? Well, I don't think the media uh, was my problem in those cases. But, you know, representing someone when you're in New York and they're based in California, um, it's very hard to go back and forth from New York to California um, every week or sometimes twice a week. And at the end of the day, you know, he wasn't a difficult client because of the infatuation. He was a difficult client because of, you know, who he was and the struggles he had with, uh, unfortunately, controlled substances, which is not, 
you know, violating a privilege that's been discussed publicly. But, you know, I, I, I lost the faith of his family when one morning at a meeting in his house, when he was clearly, you know, unable to participate in the discussion because of, you know, some substance he had um, injected himself with, I turned to his family and I said, unless he gets residential uh, detox program and cleans up before the trial, I think Michael is gonna be dead by the time he's 50. That afternoon on CNN, when I was back in the hotel packing to go back to New York, on the crawl of the bottom of uh, CNN, it said, you know, Ben Brathman, Mark Garagos, replaced by, you know, lawyer, replaced as lawyers for Michael Jackson. They didn't want to hear that. I, I really consider the whole family of Michael Jackson to be people who, you know, really were part of his, uh, you know, posse and part of his gravy train, if you will. I think they saw Michael as, uh, you know, an earner because of the music. And, you know, to be honest with you, he was one of my favorite entertainers. I mean, his music was genius, his dancing was genius, but, you know, wasn't the facts of the case. In California, they give you the grand jury testimony at the arraignment. On the way back from the arraignment, I, I, I read the grand jury testimony and I turned to Mark Garagos, who's, you know, a friend and his, I said to Mark, you know, this is an acquittal. And he agreed and we looked at it and it was like remarkable of how little evidence they had to support the charges and how much evidence they, they had to you know, make you conclude that the accusers were people who were opportunists. And you know, I remember getting off the plane uh, and coming back to my office and showing the grand jury testimony to my staff and you know, to a person, man, a woman, paralegal, lawyer, they said, holy cow, you're gonna get an acquittal in this case. So I didn't wanna leave the case, but you know, I was going to California twice a week, back and forth, um, the infatuation, with Michael Jackson was so over the top. I had never seen anything like it. Um, and, you know, when we were in the first time in court, I mean, that's the scene where he jumps on top of the car and he starts to dance. I think he did that in his own mind because the crowd of basically teenagers or preteen, they were pushing so hard against the fence that they wanted to see Michael and that's the only way they could see him. And, you know, that vision of him on top of the car is one that they use, you know, every time. And um, that's Michael. So what can I tell you? Mr. Brathman, why are good criminal defense lawyers important? Important? Because I think we stand between someone accused of a crime and the government. And I think, you know, we, um, our job is to primarily keep the government uh, honest. I don't mean you know, the prosecutors. I mean, you know, sometimes the agents um, see someone as vulnerable and I think the effort they take to prosecute, I think, uh, you know, as a, as a matter of uh, principle, I think, you know, we are, uh, we are the, the defense, if you will, against over-aggressiveness. I also think that, uh, you know, most of my cases, there is an element of intent that they have to prove. Many people screw up. And a lot of people screw up without intending to screw up. And, you know, to the extent that the uh, consequences of screwing up could mean, you know, your loss of freedom for five or 10 years. I think our job is very important and I'm proud of the job I do. And you know what? We have, uh, we have a, uh, a 
government on the other side. You know, I'm on the courtroom standing next to my client, and it's always the United States of America against John Doe or the people of the state of New York against my client. It's a daunting uh, proposition to be against the entire government. And the government has unlimited resources, unlimited support staff, and it's the United States of America and, you know, the government. And, you know, when I do an opening statement, more often than not, you know, I mentioned that. I said, you know, these people can stand up and say the government uh, calls its next witness. That's, you know, how it's done. They're not the government, you know, the prosecutors. Um, and I think they want to uh, win. And, uh, but they're not the government. You're part of the government. So I think we, we level the playing field a little bit. And I'll, I'll tell you something else. You know, I, uh, uh, I think that uh, on balance, uh, the government wins a lot of the time, despite our best uh, efforts. But, you know, as often as I, I have in the course of my uh, professional life had a jury say not guilty, you know, I'm proud of that record. I know very good criminal lawyers who've never heard a jury say uh, not guilty because the government, you know, often wins. And those are the statistics. But my job is important to uh, a democracy. Mr. Braffin, once again, thanks so much for your time. Very much appreciated.